I was 18 years old, fresh out of high school and about to start college. It surprises some people to learn that my life in higher education started at art school. I was interested in animation and headed halfway across the country to spend too much money to learn more. I barely lasted a year before transferring and starting down the road to where I am now. But the gods of random roommate assignments introduced me to Cody Duckworth. He was there to major in film, and he's gone on to direct an independent film and work in the film and TV industry. But even back then, he'd already developed a taste for, uh, let's call it the avant-garde. I caught up with Cody recently and asked him if he remembers the movie he introduced me to most enthusiastically. Can you guess what film you introduced me to that I still remember? (laughs) Um... I, I do. I actually do remember. I mean, there's a couple of them. I forced a lot of people to watch David Lynch stuff. Um, Bingo. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure it, it was either Mulholland Drive or it was Eraserhead. It was Mulholland Drive. Yeah, you, it was, okay. You yeah. sat us down and you said, we're watching this tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. And and it's it's ruined your life. I guess so. Yeah. So here that's, I am. That's why you left art school. <laughs> yeah, For some context, Wikipedia describes Mulholland Drive as a surreal, neo-noir mystery film. And I'm sure it's great. People praise this movie, but it's kind of bizarre, and I just wasn't ready for it. But it makes me think about that experience we all have. There's something we love, and we're so excited to introduce it to other people. A movie, a book, a TV show. If we could just sit people down and show them that thing we love surely they'll love it too, right? I, I've i tried for so long to get people to enjoy the things <laughs> that, I, that I appreciate, and I just can't seem to get them to do it. And I think it's just because my tastes are just so, you know, out there. Enter the world of criticism. Maybe it's not enough to assume that everything is self-evidently wonderful or despicable. Maybe we need someone to walk us through why they love something or hate it. I asked Cody what he thinks of film criticism as a pursuit. I don't know if I consider the nobility of criticism, but I do regard the value in it in terms of how can somebody who doesn't have necessarily a frame of reference for things, you know, so I guess relating it back to film, you know, you have a film critic and, you know, these people have probably seen every movie that's been released for the past 10 years. And then they also have a backlog of cinema that they've reviewed or, or just watched. And then they've learned from, you know, past film critics. And so they just have this whole library of ideas fl- like floating around in their head, whereas the average person doesn't have that. And, you know, say like you, if I showed you Mulholland Drive, you have no frame of reference for that. Um, you don't know what you're getting into. And then you go, oh, God, I got to go teach a class, <laughs> and move to Ohio, you know. Um, so, you know, everything in context makes a lot more sense than if you just kind of go in blindly. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and to learn more about film criticism, I talked to Alyssa Wilkinson. She's a writer and film critic at Vox, but she's also written for Rolling Stone, Vulture, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and a bunch of other lovely places. In 2017, she was inducted into the New York Film Critics Circle, and this year she was elected to the National Society of Film Critics. She also teaches criticism and cultural theory at the King's College in New York City. It's safe to say she knows what she's talking about. So I talked to Alyssa about the place film criticism plays in society, how she distills her thoughts and feelings about a film into a written piece, and what's so wrong with Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, if you don't mind, we could start by just getting some background on you and, and how you found yourself doing this kind of work. I, I'm sure it was a perfectly linear path for you, just like <laughs> is it everyone. Uh, but, but what is it that, that you think brought you to film criticism? Yeah, almost nobody who does film criticism intends to, as far as I can tell, um, because, just because there isn't a linear path. So I started out as an um, information technologist and computer scientist. Uh, that's what I studied in college, and I learned to code, and I got a job on Wall Street doing um, business analysis, which was meant basically nothing. It was a very, very large bank, um, and they just 
didn't really have a lot for me to do. And I quit and I went to grad school and got a job as a tech writer in order to do something that was a little closer, um, you know, to kind of things I was interested in, but I was still trying to figure out what I was interested in. So that was an interdisciplinary humanities degree that kind of introduced me to a lot of thought, I guess, and ways of thinking that I hadn't encountered in college. And in the meantime, I had started freelancing, writing all kinds of things because I was just very, very bored uh, in my job and hated it. Um, And then I sort of like started to be watching a lot of movies and reading a lot of books and all those kinds of things and reading a lot of magazines and thinking about what people were writing and getting interested in the idea of writing for magazines and Film criticism was one thing I was reading, but for, I would say, most of my career, that wasn't even the primary thing I wrote. It was just one of the things I wrote. Um, the thing about film criticism is that it's it's actually fairly accessible to get into because you don't really need to know necessarily everything about film. You just need to be a good writer and be able to think and read and watch films well. So that's what I started doing. I also wrote about TV. I wrote about books. I wrote about art. I wrote about all kinds of things. But film is something that I've always um, been attracted to writing about. It, there's something very elegant about the um, the closed nature of a film where it sort of starts and then it ends. And I like that, which probably explains why I don't love writing about like Marvel films, because it's more kind of open-ended the way TV is. Um, and TV is very difficult to write about, although I do that as well. And, you know, I'm in New York and New York has a just outstanding cinema culture, um, you know, best in the world, maybe with the possible exception of Paris. And so we have all these theaters, they're playing things all the time. You know, some of the most exciting work is made here. Some of the most exciting artists live here. Um, And I found that my style of writing was a good fit for that. Um, So along the way, I ended up teaching college and then I got an MFA. And in that time, I was freelancing all the time. Um, And then I got the job at Vox um, three and a half years ago um, because someone had been reading my freelance work over there and they were hiring someone to cover film and and gave me a call. So I think that the, the decision to pursue that was partly just like, that's a rare job. There's not very many people who have those jobs. Um, And also I like writing about it and I love movies. I think they're important and kind of unique among art forms for being both technologically driven and populist and, you know, very much high art at the same time. So there's a lot to work with there. But I don't come at it from the position of someone who knows everything about film history or technique or anything like that. That's always been a learning process for me. Yeah, it, it's interesting that the, where, where I thought that story could have gone was like there was this deep passion for film that you'd always have and you were just itching to, to let that out. Whereas it sounds like instead it, it sort of came from an interest and aptitude for writing and this sort of became a compelling thing to write about. Is that right? Yeah. And also an interest. I think I like thinking <laughs> and writing is the way that I figure out what I think. Um, so that's and criticism is for me a good melding of um, essay writing and like analysis, uh, that was a big part of it. Just trying to figure out what I think about things, you know, on paper is very exciting to me. Yeah, writing is thinking is is a mantra in all sorts of fields, right? Where you go, I don't really know. I mean, in scientific writing, you think like, well, I don't really know if I get what I think is true until I start writing the paper. And then I go, oh, oh yeah, right. That's what I, mm-hmm. that's what I think it is. And so in terms of the actual process of, distilling those thoughts into a written piece. Can you talk about what that process looks like? So is it is it really you just sort of, I watched this thing, I had no thoughts, I sat down at the computer, and now I started to have thoughts, right? Yeah. That's one version. Or or you you start, you sit at the computer and you go, I already know what this thing's going to look like, and then I just start writing. So what, what does that process look like for you? This is a great question. Um, I like to talk about it with my students, too, because they usually don't know what the answer is. Um, I you know, it's different for everyone. And I feel like mine has evolved over time. And it probably varies based on the film a little bit, too. So there are some films going in where I kind of basically know what's going to happen in this movie, um, because I know what I'm being sold. It's a certain bill of goods. That's what 
big parts of the industry um, are created to do is to sell you something you know what you're getting. Um, so I go in and then I kind of watch it. I try to always keep a really open mind about things, but I am kind of watching it to like pick up on what I'm going to need to fill in what it is that I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to write. Then sometimes it surprises you, um, which is the best feeling. Um, other times there's a lot of films where you walk in, you have no idea what's about to happen. Um, you might have some background. I, I kind of know what this is about. So I'm like inclined toward or away from the subject matter. I've seen movies by this director before. I am inclined toward or away from the film maybe. Um, and there's no way to go in completely unbiased. All the people act like there is like you're a human, you have biases. So you bring those into the theater with you. You watch it. You try to set yourself outside of it as much as you can while also acknowledging like I'm having this reaction because of something. Um, but for what I tell my students and the way I think about it is the first thing and the most important thing that every critic does is start with their emotional reactions and acknowledge them as subjective emotional reactions. And you have to start there um, because if this movie um, didn't make me laugh and was supposed to make me laugh and you can tell, then I have to first think like, like, is it me? Right. Cause sometimes it is me. Like I just had a bad day or, um, you know, I, th these jokes don't strike me as funny or maybe it like, maybe sometimes I, um, I think like I am not, I am, I am deficient in empathy in the fact that this movie didn't do anything for me. Sometimes it's because the movie did a bad job, but sometimes it's because it's just not hitting me you know, in the right place. And I think the more movies I watch, the more I recognize that because I'll rewatch a movie I saw a couple years ago and have a completely different reaction to it and realize that the reason I had a completely different reaction is because I'm a different person than I was when I watched it. So that's okay. And I think that um, sometimes critics, film critics rightly get a bad rap for acting like their opinion is the correct opinion rather than an opinion. So I walk out with my emotional reactions. I try to take note of those. This is difficult in a festival kind of context where you've, you're seeing four or five movies a day and you need to really remember. Um, so, you know, you take notes. And then when I sit down to actually write, I think, okay, how did I feel about this movie? And I kind of start from there. And then my job is to figure out why I felt that way about the movie and then make an argument for that, which means sometimes I might end up arguing that this movie is great and it did nothing for me, or this movie is terrible and I loved it. Um, <laughs> or more often it's somewhere in between or it's great and I loved it or it's terrible or once in a while the answer is this movie is just bad and here are reasons that it shouldn't like it's just bad like it's doing bad things it's bad for people um but the argument I'm making is both supporting my opinion and trying not to say this is the only opinion my hope is that people will you know maybe they see it and they're like you hated that movie how could you hate that movie then they read the review and they think okay i can see how you could hate that movie um that's really challenging because it's still like i'm still sure i'm right but what i have to remember is i'm right about my opinion i know that this is the opinion i have um, but not necessarily that my opinion should be shared by everyone in the universe so that means that some of the critics i love the most and read the most are people who I have no taste in common with them ever. Like I'm shocked when we like the same movies, but I love how they convince me to see their point of view, even if I don't ultimately agree with it. So that's kind of how the process goes for me. And then the last piece of it, which I kind of hate that I have to do this is to like assign a rating to it. Mm -hmm. And so I do have kind of a mental model where it's like, you know, we have a five star system, two and a half is like, this is fine, <laughs> right? And below there is like degrees of something went very wrong here. Five is, I think maybe I give that to like five movies a year tops. And five is like, this is a perfect movie and there's nothing I can change. And I responded to it. Four and a half often is, this is a perfect movie, but I just, it's just, I can, like something didn't connect with me. And then it kind of goes down from there. Do you find that five-star movies are harder to write the review yeah. for? Because you go, there's nothing, I just, I left it. Yeah. And it was perfect. And I just, what am I going to explain why it's perfect? Mm -hmm. Is it, so is there more of a, in some ways, it's sort of strange to say that it's disappointing when a movie's a five-star movie. <laughs> it's intimidating. Like if I walk out and I'm like, ugh, like 
yeah, it's it's a feeling of like, I don't know how to do this justice. And I'm scared to start like those are the ones I get hung up on the most they take the longest to write. Um, the easiest reviews are usually four star reviews for me for some reason mm -hmm. where I'm like, this movie is so good. You should definitely go see it. It's important. It's great. Good movie, you know, and that that movie is kind of the easiest to review. Um, I don't write a lot of pans. And the reason largely is that I think that it's bad. <laughs> I think it's I think it's unnecessary in my case, since I don't work for a trade paper and I don't technically cover the whole industry. I don't need to like destroy someone's career, especially if they're just starting out or they clearly like had a low budget, ran into some snags or something like that. The only time I really feel comfortable or the only time it's worth my time to pan a movie um, is if it's a big blockbuster or something, you know, clearly went awry and like my review isn't necessarily going to like completely obliterate someone's career, but it might help some people to think twice about a film that they weren't going to think critically about. Um, but I've probably, I mean, I've written a very, the, the one that sticks out that I, I wrote probably my first year was about the emoji movie, which was just, I, I read that earlier today and it was a delight. <laughs> and it was, you know, that was, I was just so angry when I left that movie and I was angry during it. And I wasn't angry going into it. Cause I thought, who knows, like the Lego movie I thought was going to be a catastrophe and it's great. Right. That's possible. Um, but I hate this, you know, kind of commodification of every property imaginable in order to make a buck. And I don't like that aspect of the industry at all. So, that's kind of the other side of it. Pans are really difficult to write because the only thing you can really do is either get really angry or be really funny. And I'm not a, I'm not a terribly funny writer and I don't really like writing angry things. Um, but even more importantly, like for where I am, that's not my mandate. Um, if I were working at Variety or something, it'd be a very different story. So one of the things you were saying when you were talking about how you put those reviews together is is starting with the emotion, right? And sort of using that as, as a driving force. And that stood out to me just because there's all this work in uh, attitudes and persuasion in psychology about uh, the role of emotion and reason in forming opinions. And that's true for anything, right? There are political uh, personnel that I, I go, I, I feel one way, but I think another way. And so when it comes to summarizing, right, you said that the awful part of this is that you have to give it a number at the end of the day. What what wins? Is it the how it made you feel? Or or in the end, do you go, even if I had fun, I, you, I would not recommend the movie because <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I actually think star ratings are a big problem in criticism. I understand why we have them, but, um, you know, really, they get flattened out then into Rotten Tomatoes kinds of things and I just think that's it's bad it's it's bad because it turns it it trains people to think that criticism's job is to give be like a, a buyer's guide or something like that like I'm not telling you I, I was talking to a friend who who was saying it's so funny we get these emails sometimes if you write a negative review of a movie people will email you and say well I'm gonna go see it anyhow and I'm like <laughs> That's fine. I like I I literally do not care if you buy a ticket to this movie with very few exceptions. I don't care what the box office is. That's not my goal. Um my goal is to like expand the work of art by making my own. Um so the rating system turns that into something more as if it's scientific and it's just not. There's nothing scientific about it. Um and so Often I have written reviews where the rating uh, doesn't seem to really match the review I've written. Like I might write a really positive review or really ecstatic review of a movie that I ultimately think is about three stars, but it's so great. You know, I loved it so much. And so if you really want my opinion, you need to read the review. If you look at the stars, it'll tell you something. But in my head, those are just those are the numbers that feed the aggregators. And so I just put it in there to like accurately hmm. represent that. But the emotion part is far more important to me ultimately. Um, and I also think people like reading that better because criticism is so much about the person who's writing it. Um, you know, Pauline Kael kind of famously was asked, why didn't you write an autobiography? 
And she was like, I did. And she's right. She wrote, you know, collections of reviews. And she was like, that's my autobiography. And I think that's a, it's not that my criticism is about me, but people read it because I wrote it. And that's true for any critic. And so it's the critics who try to turn it into a science or like a math equation, who I think ultimately become kind of boring. Nobody really cares if you get it right. What they care about is like your passionate opinion. So, so what then, what's the role of a film critic? So sort of putting all these together, like what's at the end of the day, what is your job? I mean, my job as it exists at present is to pay very close attention to the industry and be a, I always think of critics as kind of a special kind of audience member who just sees a lot of stuff and thinks about this all the time and tries to do a little bit of the chewing for the audience so that when they my best case scenario is someone sees a movie and then says, wow, what was that? Or like wants to process their experience. And then they go look up my review. Those are the best case about, you know, I think it's starting to become, it feels like the majority of audiences do that. Um, It's certainly a lot of the audience that does that. Uh, So that's great for me because then my job is to kind of be like a guide or a, a, uh, you know, it, it's funny because I've landed at Vox. Our job is to quote unquote explain the news. And so I do sometimes think about what I'm doing in those terms. How can I maybe not explain the movie to you, but sort of draw out stuff or kind of tell you what I think is important to think about with this movie? And that's the job. So, like, I, I feel like a, the maybe not as much anymore, but a lay perception of criticism is it's a recommendation system, mm-hmm. right? And certainly, I mean, my my stereotypes of this job are that it's a recommending, probably a lot because of Rotten Tomatoes and other aggregators like that. You go, well, I've got, I'm not going to see all the movies this weekend. So which one am I going to see? Yeah. This is the one that everyone says is great. And I found, it's interesting that you mentioned that the, the challenge of summarizing the review or your your approach to it in a, a summary evaluation because mm-hmm. i remember early on i used to get the new yorker and i would read the film reviews and i would get so frustrated because by the end i would be like is it a good one or a bad one don't just uh, 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 this does nothing for me mm-hmm. um and so if you approach it with that mindset of course that would be frustrating yeah. and so it's useful to to get that perspective of like you know yes there's a part of this job that is like, I, I got to give it a star rating and it's going to help some people find a movie. But really, I, I like what you say that it almost is better served as the snack after the movie to help you digest and process what you just saw and felt. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a sense in which I think audiences have been trained to use Rotten Tomatoes to decide if they're going to watch the movie. And I do think if that means that you pick what you're going to see based on that, and then you go read my review, that's better. Um, Or an even better case is when people find a critic whose taste kind of tracks their own and they read that person. Um, Or sometimes I've found just tweet at that person and ask them what they should watch that weekend. But (laughs) that's, that's helpful. And there are some critics who are those people for me. Like if this person liked this movie, then I'm pretty sure I will like it too. And I'll make sure I, I'll make a point of seeing it. Um, So critics have those people as well. But yeah, I do think, um, the, the recommendations thing is understandable, and it is also true that that is a part of my job. And honestly, right now, um, because we're in the middle of a situation where people are kind of um, stuck at home, desperate to figure out what they're supposed to watch, <laughs> and there's a lot of new releases coming out, but there's no theaters, um, I have rejiggered myself a little to make sure that I'm doing primarily recommendations even though I'm actually watching every movie that's coming out, I just finished the last one that's coming out this week. Um, I won't recommend them all. I'll only recommend the ones that I think are worth your time. Um, that's not, I mean, that's not criticism to me. That's just like, that's just service journalism, but it's, hmm. you know, in the best case scenario, if I had a little more time, which right now it's just like very busy, but if I had a little more time, I'd be able to turn some of that into criticism. And I've done a little bit here and there and I, I have more coming um, especially once we move into the summer months. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, different different situations call for different 
types of criticism. And if I was going to Cannes in a couple weeks, like I was supposed to, I would be writing very different kinds of things there than I will be writing in a couple of weeks, which is where I'll be just watching all the indie releases that are hitting streaming services in VOD and trying to find the ones that I think people ought to know about. Um, but it's a ha it's kind of an exciting time for that reason, even though I don't like it and I hope it stops. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how does the, how does that goal change the way you approach things, right? If you go, well, now my goal is to, to recommend, put some things on people's radar. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that change? How do you anticipate what people, how do you decide what people should pay attention to? Yeah, well, right now there's about eight, movies a week, something like that, that are coming out. And most people have no idea of this. So the first thing I look for is, so I'm trying to put my head, I'm trying to put myself in the head of multiple types of audience members when I'm watching something and think like, okay, I don't want to watch this, but is there someone who will love it? Um, and often the answer is yes. Although sometimes I'm like, they shouldn't watch it. There's other stuff they should watch and I just won't recommend it. Um, but I'm also thinking about, you know, like it would be easy for me right now to only recommend really stellar films that played at Cannes last year, all of which are hitting these virtual theatrical mm. um, systems right now. But not everybody wants to watch, you know, like a three hour stunning, gorgeous, devastating drama about like <laughs> just Russian women, you know, in the early 20th century. It's like Beanpole, one of the best movies I saw at Cannes, absolutely not something most people should watch right now because it'll just <laughs> kill them. Um, and there are other movies that might be better fits, even though they're probably not as good of movies. So I wouldn't say I've lowered my standards. I've just kind of tried to find to find ways to say like, this isn't the best thing you've ever seen, but it's going to be really good for you right now. Um, and also to say like, get, you know, take a chance on this, uh, this thing that you might not have. And this is the most exciting part because people make decisions about what to go see based on whether they think they're going to get their money's worth. Um, but now, you know, even the most mm -hmm. expensive movie you might watch at home is going to cap out at like 12 bucks. So I can say, hey, like take a chance on this movie that you might not have watched. Otherwise you might find you really love it. And I don't know what the effect of that is because we're only six weeks into this. But I do hope that for some people, this has actually been like a really exciting time of discovery for that reason. And then the last piece of it is always like, what do people have access to? And I try to make sure we got some Netflix in there or some Hulu, just some stuff that people probably have access to because I know you know, it's people who don't have a lot of money right now or who are worried about those things, but almost everyone seems to have access to Netflix somehow. Um, and, you know, as a lot of stuff that comes out on Netflix isn't that great, but um, they're also not great at advertising what's on there. And so sometimes critics are aware of stuff that's coming out that we saw at a festival um, that aren't, it's not going to be surfaced because you know, Tiger King or something just is unendingly on their screen. <laughs> and that I can be like, go, you know, go watch the platform, actually a great movie. You probably wouldn't have known about it otherwise. And then I can say it's like Parasite. And then people are like, oh, Parasite. I remember Parasite. Now they can go find something. So yeah, it changes it. I, I wouldn't say I'm writing as much criticism as I was two months ago. Um, but I don't expect this to be the way things will be forever. Um, and if we're even exactly in this situation four months from now, like nothing has changed, um, what I'll be writing, I think will have shifted a little bit. I also presume that the way that you approach this is different for Vox than it would be for other outlets, right? Is there is there anything about like a Vox readership that you keep in mind? Yes. That, that you go, well, I have to recommend differently for this audience. Very much, yeah. So I've and I've written for all kinds of audiences. I um, I was at Christianity Today before I came to Vox, which is quite different, um, as you can imagine. <laughs> I had freelanced mm -hmm. for uh, Roger Ebert and Rolling Stone and Vulture and all those places. I think that. Um, what I know about Fox readership is they tend to be um, fairly well educated, very curious about the world, um, kind of nerdy. I don't know how else to say that, but like there's a documentary about capitalism coming out this weekend. And I was like, that will have to go on the list. <laughs> it's an okay <laughs> documentary, but it'll be on the list because this is definitely something our audience is going to be interested in. Um, and so stuff like that often feel feels voxy as all I will think of it. Um, 
And so documentaries, yeah, they usually play well. Um, often if I can find something that has some kind of um, relationship to current events in some way, even if it's not about them, um, you know, it's not directly newsy, but it has some kind of, you know, hook that those things often do well. Um, and they tend to be pretty adventurous. Like a Vox audience is not generally one that's going to be like, oh, I won't watch that movie because it has subtitles. So if I can make the case for something, people seem to be interested. Um, there are also plenty of people, you know, obviously a lot of traffic comes from search engines. So there are plenty of people who aren't Vox readers who then find the review and an odd um, facet of Rotten Tomatoes is that if your review ends up there, they put like a sentence and then people can click through. And so sometimes people definitely have found my review because I negatively reviewed the movie they really liked and now they're really mad at me. Um, but yeah, I, you know, audience makes all the difference. And, you know, my friend at Rolling Stone, if there's a music documentary, like he's gonna review it, even if the music documentary isn't very good. Whereas I, you know, I'm more like, if there's something about voting rights, I, I better mm. review that people are interested in it. Or, you know, a movie about, it's not all politics, but policy kind of stuff um, usually needs to be, someone's going to catch wind of it and want to know something about it. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned being able to sort of get some idea of which reviews are getting attention or which articles are getting attention. And I read your your article on spoilers <laughs> and you mentioned too that you went, well, those are get, get garnering lots of attention. So I know that there's an audience for that. Is there Are there patterns that you've picked up in sort of the the kinds of perspectives that people are looking for and and just i mean from my end data is king so what kinds of data are you using to form those yeah those inferences i mean so so a couple things so i can see you know i can see how many hits i've had i can see time read uh so i know when people have read the article um i can also see where they're coming from whether it's like an aggregator, uh, Flipboard is a big one, Facebook not so much anymore, um, search engine traffic, of course. And that's the search engine thing is how I know that people are really, really interested in anything that has the word spoiler in it, um, either in the URL, sometimes in the, um, the, the headline. And these are actually pretty great ways for me to write stealth criticism. Um, is to write what we call ending explainers <laughs> so that people clearly know when they click on them that this is going to tell you what just happened at the end of that movie. But actually, it's a way for me to write something very complete about the movie that I wouldn't have written in the review because I didn't want to give away the ending. And that especially matters for movies that have like real crazy endings or twists or something. So last summer, um, I wrote one for the film Midsummer. And that piece alone still does more traffic every week than most of the other new stuff I publish every week. That, and I did not expect that. I just, I saw the movie and I was like, I should probably explain the ending of this movie because it's like just kind of insane. And I feel like people are going to want to know about it. And I was right. So I do think of those as criticism, even though I know people kind of poo poo the idea of like, why do you need to explain the movie? And it's because people really want to know what they just watched and whether usually it's whether their hunch about what they just saw was correct. Um, another one that still does really good traffic is I reviewed Arrival like right after I started at Vox and it was a month after and I still get a lot of traffic on that because every time people watch Arrival they want to know what that movie was um, and that's what great art should do so I think like criticism can do that too and my job isn't to like tell you what happened, but rather to help you sort through what just happened. So people really want that. And then they also do seem to really like it when you, well, they love curated content. So right now I am writing kind of, I wouldn't call it a listicle, but I am writing like a curated list of recommendations for what to watch this weekend based on only what is newly available this weekend. So it's not like the best stuff out there. It's just like, this is all the stuff that's newly available for you to watch. Either it just came out or Netflix just picked it up or something like that. Um, and that does extraordinarily well. So I know people are interested in that. And I think, again, that is the personal aspect. They really want to know that like a person has given them a list. Um, and it's a manageable list. Like it's like eight things. <laughs> it's not like here are the 50 best movies on Netflix. I mean, that list is out there. 
I don't want to read it because it's just too long, right? Um, so people want that. The other thing that has been really odd and interesting to me is that, and I still can't totally put my finger on it, but I do a lot of interviews with filmmakers generally and writers and sometimes actors, but I try to stick to the filmmakers because they're the most interesting ones. And they seem to be really interested in hearing how they talk about the thing they made, especially when that thing is confusing. Um, and my example here is that last summer I interviewed the movie The Lighthouse came out, which is a very strange movie about Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson being trapped in a lighthouse together for a couple of months, which is very apt right now. Um, and I interviewed both Pattinson, who is, you know, a megastar, the guy from Twilight, and um, the director, Robert Eggers, for this film. And I told my editors, they were very excited, especially about Pattinson, you know, they made like a image about, you know, that we could put on the page and like that one on the front page. The Eggers interview did more traffic than the Pattinson one. And from that, and in that, he kind of explained a lot of how he was thinking about it. And from that, I realized that like people, people who watch uh, movies that aren't simple and easy are actually like super engaged with the storytelling, the visuals. They want to kind of dig into it a little bit. And the best way to dig in is to, you know, hear from either a critic who's really done that digging work or the person who made it. Um, and at least for our audience, those do really well. And I know from friends at other sites that they will run the identical articles and have a totally different result. Um, so that's all I know from, from my audience. Um, but, you know, they just... Uh, I am always heartened by how many people are just really super interested in how art works. And maybe that's the key is like, I'm, I'm most interested in publishing things that I would read. Um, and my editors give me a bit of latitude to sort of figure that one out myself. The, the open-ended uh, explain explainers or wh whatever <laughs> you want to call them is interesting because it makes me wonder about that, that that is like a real difference between people, right? The people who go, I didn't get it. This was bad. Yes. <laughs> Versus people who go, I don't get it. Uh, there's more to unpack here. I have to understand it. We just watched, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's this Spanish film uh, where they're in this like multi-level prison. It's a platform. Like a, a, on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we, we just watched that and that was it. And a perfect example of what you're saying where it ended and I could have just said, that was stupid. <laughs> I, I don't get it. But instead it was like, well, I, this that's what sticks with yeah. you, right? And I'm curious what, what it is that distinguishes the person who says, eh, I didn't get it, must have been bad, versus the people who go, that's that's the allure is trying to get to the bottom yeah. uh, of what it is. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny you say that because I got an email today from someone who had apparently taken my strong recommendation of the film, The Assistant, which is not a difficult movie to understand. Um, it's just a young woman who works in an office that basically is Harvey Weinstein's office, although we never see Weinstein. And this person was livid that I had recommended this movie because he's like, nothing happens in it. And the girl is not sympathetic and we never see the boss. And I was like, yeah, that means something, <laughs> you know? So like a lot of what I see as the difference between those, I mean, you don't have to like it, right? But it's not like it's not like a mistake that the filmmaker just like forgot to put the boss in the movie. Like that's a choice. <laughs> and I think a lot of the the a lot of what I hope I can impart to people when I write about movies and a lot of what distinguishes people, those two groups of people, is the people who are like, oh, a director made this movie and made choices about it. And those choices have significance. And I want to think about what it is that they're doing with those choices. And people who are like, well, this is left out, so it must be bad, right? Or like, I don't sympathize with this person um, who's the main character, and so it's a bad movie or something like that. I've heard some philosophy that the job of a critic is to evaluate how well the product lives up to the filmmaker's intentions. Which, which sounds a little bit like what you're saying, right? It's like, it might, maybe the intention wasn't anything I was ever going to be into. But if I feel like this person pulled off their goal, then great. Um, yeah. Does, does that resonate? Does that kind it of does. fit what you're saying? With the caveat that I don't really know what an artist's intentions are. And I also try to remember 
like both that I need to remember somebody made this and also to say that that doesn't excuse something <laughs> like just because you went into it with the best intentions you know or worst intentions doesn't mean that you didn't make something that totally like doesn't meet those in one way or another so it's still my reaction that is the primary subject of what I'm writing um, with the addition of all these other considerations. I don't really believe in the death of the author, but I also don't believe that the author and what they were trying to do has a whole lot of relevance to what actually happened. Um, but I do think about what the movie seems to be trying to do or be, and mm -hmm. whether, not to personify it, but kind of the movie wants me to think this way. Does it undercut its aims? Does it, you know serve them up and and knowing that my perception of that might be different from the person who was sitting right next to me during the movie so the last thing that that uh, i wanted to give you an opportunity to do was uh comment on rotten tomatoes this was my plan before it already naturally came mm -hmm. up um and so i saw that you you've written about rotten tomatoes not not too long ago and so in reading that i felt fairly vindicated because some of the problems i have with it you nicely outlined there um and and the measurement problem is exactly the problem that I've had with it, which is that I think there's a easy mistake to make where you say this film got an 85%. That means on average, critics thought it was an 85% movie, when really, when you nuts and bolts it, it's like, well, no, it means of all the reviews we have, after we dichotomize those reviews as being good movies or bad movies, regardless of how good or how bad, and we just counted it up, 85% of them at least said it wasn't bad. Yes. Right. And that's really all that number has to mean. Um, so that's certainly one of my problems with it. W what are some other, I guess my question is twofold. One is, what are your gripes with it? This is your platform to to <laughs> to gripe. But, but also, is there still a role that a place like Rotten Tomatoes has to play in culture? Well, so I will start with the second question, because I do think that one thing Rotten Tomatoes has done um, especially lately, um, in the last couple of years, they've made some hires that have really tried to set up Rotten Tomatoes uh, partly as a place where people get to understand who critics are and what they do. So it's that they're, they're, the product they're selling is still this rating and the rating is frustrating to all critics. Um, but they've tried to like expand their pool, um, which means that some critics might get um, traffic they didn't get before or get recognized or just discovered. Um, so that's really cool that they're doing that. And they've also, they run more editorial content to try and like surface some of those voices and help people just understand what critics are. That's great. I'm glad they're doing that. Um, their underlying model is the problem. And it's basically because they have two kinds of data, yes or no. And the thumbs up or thumbs down thing obviously didn't originate with them, right? It's, that's that's Roger Ebert. So, as, <laughs> and you know, we all love him. He's a saint for critics. So, um, but that, that idea that like the movie is, you know, and he was doing it from a personal perspective, but as soon as you try to turn that into data across thousands of people and then make a number out of it and then put it on your Fandango page, that's where things get, you know, troublesome. Um, because people just look at it, they're like, ah, oh, 60%, that means it's a 60% good movie. And that's not what that means at all. And the best movies usually divide opinions sharply, which means a movie in the middle of the range probably is going to be one of the best movies uh, often, not in all cases, but in many Or it's cases. a movie everyone is lukewarm about. <laughs> yeah. Well, but even then, if everyone was lukewarm on the lower level, it would it would have a lower rating, right? Um it's just a very strange number. Um, and it tends to flatten opinion out to like yes or no. And yes or no are not the critics toolbox, right? Critics don't like flip a switch, yes or no. It's more about like a range of kind of feelings and opinions and thinking and wrestling and all of those things. And every critic I know is very proud when they get the email from Rotten Tomatoes that comes sometimes where they'll say, we can't tell if your review is fresh or rotten. And everyone's like, yeah, like I did it right. You know, <laughs> um, the slightly better model comes from Metacritic, which um, doesn't have thousands of people in the database who might be just like random bloggers at their own random blog, but rather has a data set of it's like 40 critics at um, major publications um, 
well, it's actually publications, but yeah. So like, um, I, it took me years and one year, I, one day I logged in like two years ago and realized I was in there, but I hadn't been for most of my career. They're very, very selective. They also have weighting where they weight some opinions higher than others and they don't tell you anything about that. So, um, but they do joke on their FAQs that like Manola Dargis at the New York Times, her opinion gets weighted a little more than some of the others. Um, and so they have some quality control, I think, going on, and then they do it on a 10 point scale. So if I gave it, you know, three and a half out of five stars, it's going to read 70 on Metacritic, and then they use that number to calculate their average. So you're getting something a little more granular and a little more controlled. Um, there are obvious problems that can crop up with that kind of a system, too. Um, but I think the biggest problem, again, is just that it's kind of turns it's made people think the wrong thing about a movie. Um, and on top of it, for Rotten Tomatoes, honest, bigger problem has been their audience score for a long time, which until until very recently, about a year ago, um, was just like any random person on the internet could go log their opinion. Um, but that meant that um, trolls and like, you know, kind of the dark corners of the internet were going in and bombing movies like Black Panther and Captain Marvel. Now you can't do it till the weekend movie comes out, um, which is better, I guess, but not really as useful as, you know, verifying in some way. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango. This is something they can do. Um, there's just like a lot of pieces, but I've had a lot of people say, oh, the audience score is more accurate. And I'm like, it's not more accurate. It's less accurate. Like you can look at it, but it's not telling you anything interesting other than what people on the internet who chose to go see a movie think about it at best, uh, as opposed to critics who have to see everything anyhow. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that that there's an opt-in component of the audience score. And and I didn't realize until now that actually the fact that criticism is a job makes the the criticism more valuable, yes. right? Because you're saying, I'm not just getting the things that people have said, oh, I'm sure I'll like this, so I'll go see this. And then my positive review doesn't mean so much. Mm -hmm. I, I was going to throw out um, just a, a final uh, comment regarding the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. So in opinion research, a long time problem has been ambivalence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if we are measuring people's opinions as support or oppose, we miss out on some meaningful information. And even if we go from I hate it to I love it, if someone's in the middle, I don't know, kind of like we're saying with a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, I don't know if that just means you have no feelings about it or you've, you're so completely torn between the good and the bad. And so the solution that we've had in our survey design is to just write separate questions mm. for how positive do you think this is and how negative do you mm. think this is? So my pitch to the criticism world is to replace a five-star rating with two ratings, mm -hmm. the positive rating and the negative rating. And that, that would allow for, I think, a compelling uh, article to say, there's a lot going for this and a lot I hated about yeah. this. I've <laughs> often, be interesting. I have often thought that if we could have two ratings, one that was craft- or like technical and one that was like, did I like it? That those two, but I also, I'm more in favor of just ditching them. Um, and I will tell you the one reason why is because when I worked at Christianity Today, we had a four point system there and I saw Wolf of Wall Street, a terrific Martin Scorsese film. And I thought, well, I'm gonna do something daring. And I gave it the full four stars that I thought it deserved. And then I wrote an extremely long content advisory at the end that explains like why there's, you know, not everybody wants to go see this movie. And I got this irate lady uh, in my inbox who wanted me fired. Um, and she said, well, I saw your rating and I took my kid to see it. And I was like, that's not how this works at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was like, I think some people just look at the rating and then they just don't read the review. And I would much rather you feel like you have to read my review to know what I think than just see my star rating. So to wrap up, is, is there any... Uh... I mean, we're still all locked in these days. This won't come out for a couple of weeks, but still, is there anything that, that you'd want to put on people's radar? What what should, I mean, even just mine, like what should I watch? Tonight? Yeah, well, The Assistant is one of the best movies of the year um, and hmm. it's really stunning. I feel like people might be scared away by knowing it's like kind of about Weinstein, but it's not really, it's, it's something totally different. 
really compelling film, very quiet, um, very slow, kind of not what you're expecting. Um, so I really loved that. There's also a movie called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always that's about a girl from central Pennsylvania who is trying to get an abortion, ends up taking a bus to New York City. It's this kind of like Barite style film. And um, I was really surprised by how much I liked it when I saw it at Sundance. And so that one is out there as well. Um, and on HBO last weekend, the Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney movie, Bad Education came out, which was like just one of my favorites from TIFF last year. Um, and it's like, it's funny and dark and kind of depressing and kind of great about a true case of um, embezzlement in a um, Long Island school district uh, like 10 years ago or something. It's just fantastic. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I hope more people see that. Nice. Well, that was one that my wife already wants to see. So that, that's going to probably be first yes. <laughs> on the list. Yes. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. This was super cool to hear about this perspective. Yeah, you're very welcome. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. Thanks to Alyssa for coming on. Check out the show notes for a link to her website and keep up with her writing at vox.com. Oh, also, I did end up watching Bad Education, and for what it's worth, it was great. And my friend Cody Duckworth, who you heard at the beginning of this episode, his info is in the show notes too, so check out his stuff. We actually had a fun conversation about film and whatnot, so I decided to make it available as a bonus episode, so keep a lookout for that. We talk about film and criticism, and he also reveals his top five films. And you'll never believe number five. Check it out, he's a character. For more about this show, visit OpinionSciencePodcast.com or follow us at OpinionSciPod on Twitter or Facebook. Check out our previous episodes where I've mostly been talking to academics who study the psychology of opinion. And, you know, while you're already on Apple Podcasts, might as well rate and review the show. Help people find us. Okay, this has all made me want to put a movie on, so I'm going to go do that, and I will see you back next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>